Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. This is the Word of God. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you this day that you've given to us that we can gather together to worship you, serve you, and hear from your word today. May our hearts and minds be open to an understanding of what you have for us this day. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Many times in life, and in many different ways, we all find ourselves at points where the circumstances of life seem to be conspiring against us. Have you ever felt that before? You've done everything right. You went to school like they told you to do to get a college education. You spent money to invest in that, being told that you get a good job when you came out, and you find yourself now struggling with a job. Or you ate well, and you you exercised. You thought you were staying healthy, and then you get a bad diagnosis from a doctor. All of us have experienced those times and moments in life where we thought we did everything right, and it just seems as though all of life is conspiring against us. The people we love, the people we trust, the people we work with, all seem to have it out for us, and we wonder, what did I ever do to deserve this? It's not an uncommon feeling. We've all felt that at different points in our lives in many different ways. And that's really what the story of Joseph is about so far. Here's a young man that we know, we've studied for the past several weeks, but he did what he thought was right all along life's path. You remember as we began this study some time ago that he was a young man who was given great benefit by his father, but now he finds himself in prison, and you wonder how he got there. Now, he did everything right in life. There's other Old Testament illustrations of those who don't do things right, who in fact have circumstances conspire against them because of what they do. And so we have to distinguish between these two sort of ways life unfolds. On the one hand, there may be those of us who feel like perhaps it's true that circumstances are coming against me because I've made mistakes. I've made bad choices. I've rebelled against God. And that's sometimes a natural outcome of that. On the other hand, there's those who feel like I thought I was doing the right thing all along, and now I find myself suffering for it. A few years ago, we did a study of Jonah, and he well illustrates one who was called by God to do one thing, and he did the other. He was called by God to go to Nineveh. 
Now, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. And if you remember, Assyria were the bad guys. They were the kingdom builders who came against all the other surrounding nations at this time in Israel's history to conquer them, to build their great kingdom. And God said, Jonah, go to Assyria, go to Nineveh, and preach there to them. Jonah's response was, I don't want to have to go there. And so he goes down to Joppa, and he hops a boat. And we all know that you can't get to Nineveh on a boat. So he's heading west to Spain, where God intervenes with circumstances to bring Jonah back under his control. And so we see this great storm that arises, and Jonah's eventually brought up, lots are cast, and it's determined that, Jonah, you're the cause of all this. So they cast him overboard. A great fish takes him and brings him back to dry land, where now Jonah heads to where he was supposed to be all along. Those are circumstances where we rebel against God, but God intervenes anyway to get us where he wants us to be, where he gets us to think the way we're supposed to be thinking. Joseph is perhaps somebody that illustrates the other side of it. All he did was receive the blessings from his father, Jacob. Remember, Jacob gave Joseph, one of his younger sons, the the next to the last youngest son, that coat, the coat that's described as a coat of many colors, but was really a coat of prestige and of honor, of position. This was Jacob saying to Joseph, you are my favorite first son for my favorite wife, and I want to bless you for it. And so he gives him this coat, and Joseph now, at 17 is perhaps prideful, self-centered. He begins to act that way. And so with that, he has two dreams. Now, dreams become an important part of the story in in the past uh, chapters and today. So Joseph has a dream, first, that him and his brothers are like sheaves of grain. And all the other sheaves, his brothers, bow down and worship him. And he tells this dream to his brothers, and they think, are you kidding me? You think you're going to reign over us? And he says, well, that ain't enough. I got another dream. I dreamed of a sun and a moon and stars, 11 stars, and they all bowed down to me, which represents Jacob, his father, mother, and his brothers as well. And Jacob says, are you kidding? You think we're all going to be bowing down, worshiping you? And that was Joseph's mentality, and he was sharing these dreams. And then Joseph is sent by Jacob to go find his brothers one day, and we've seen that where he goes out. And circumstances are such that his brothers now see Joseph coming, and they say, we've had enough of this kid. Let's, let's get rid of him. Let's kill him. And so when Joseph arrives, waving to his brothers, they take him and they throw him in a cistern, a deep well, a dry well, and they put him down there to say, we'll kill him. Well, let's don't kill him. Let's just instead, we'll just leave him down there and not kill him actively. He'll just die down there and it won't be on us. Well, eventually, a caravan of Midianites comes along and some of the brothers say, well, let's sell him. At least we can get a few dollars out of this character. And so they sell the younger brother and he's taken down to Egypt where we saw him become a slave in the house of Potiphar. Now, all through this, circumstances seem to be conspiring against Joseph, and he's wondering, why is this happening to me? What did I do to you guys? He's now in Potiphar's household. Now things seem to be going back up. He's on the rise again, and he finds himself now in a situation where Potiphar's wife is attempting to seduce him. Day after day, this is happening, and Joseph's saying, no, no, I'm not going to do that. Well, eventually, Joseph says no, Potiphar's wife, as evil as she was, says, well, I had enough. Let me show you. So she cries out, oh, Joseph's here. He's trying to rape me. Then he's cast into prison. Now, Joseph finds himself in prison. And that's where we ended last week and where we begin this week. Now, we don't know how much time passed between the time he was sold by his brothers and taken to Egypt and where we're at now between how how long he had been in Potiphar's household. All we know is that he's been in prison now for some time. And that's where he finds himself at this point. And he's got to be wondering to himself, 
Why are these circumstances coming against me? What did I do to deserve all of this? While in prison now, he's joined by a couple of other characters. And that's where we begin this morning, as we just saw or heard read. This passage where Joseph's in prison, and then he's joined by the chief baker and chief cupbearer of Pharaoh. Now, these are people of high position. And we see as the story develops, several things being said about them. First of all, and again in verse 1, sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. What the offense is, we don't know. But it's obviously something that put their lives at jeopardy. So they're now in prison for it. Perhaps you might think it's only what would a cupbearer and a baker do, but poison the king in some way, perhaps. And so that seems to be what they're uh, charged with, regicide or treason in some fashion. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. And the captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them. And he, Joseph, attended them. And they continued for some time in custody. Again, we don't know how long they're together, but uh, how long Joseph had been there, but Joseph's now in custody with these couple of characters. And then we have this dream that comes up. Now, think now about who these guys are. Generally, when we think of somebody who's a cup bearer or a baker, we think perhaps of somebody who's rather low in the administration and household of Pharaoh. These are servants of Pharaoh. But in fact, it sounds as though as officers, they may have had rather high positions. In fact, uh, James Montgomery Boyce talking about this uses the illustration of uh, 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 Chaucer. Uh, Geoffrey Chaucer, we remember, was uh, the great author and, and poet who wrote the Canterbury Tales. But he had a son, uh, Thomas Chaucer, who became uh, a, a, for several years in Parliament and then became the chief butler in England. Now, as a chief butler, it might sound like you're like that guy Carson from that TV show we used to watch, but uh, he was just the guy serving the food and all. But in fact, this is still in England today, held by the Duke of Norfolk. The highest position that a duke can have is to be the chief butler now to the Queen of England. That's an administrative position. It's a position of honor, and it's given to somebody who's, who's shown... Who's, Confidence is gained by the king or by the pharaoh and who now has responsibilities in religious ceremonies. And so perhaps these two guys aren't lowly, but in fact are nobles in some fashion. And that may be what they are. And so they're now in prison with Joseph. And they have dreams. Verse 5. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who are confined in prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. And when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces so downcast today? And they said to him, We have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. So we see several things happening here. First, we have these dreams. What do you make of the dreams? On the one hand, we see dreams here in this point in Genesis. We see Daniel, in the book of Daniel, receiving visions or dreams from God, which are revelatory to Daniel. And we see, of course, John on the island of Patmos also receiving a vision from God from which the book of Revelation is written. But primarily, we don't see dreams as a fundamental way in which God works 
throughout Scripture, except in these few isolated points. And because we have God's word in our hand now revealed to us, we don't need dreams. And so I'm always somewhat cautious or suspect of people who say, oh, I had a dream or a vision and I've seen this and, and I, I died for 30 minutes and went to heaven, all of that sort of things. Perhaps we just set that aside and say, we need to know about the future God has given to us in his word. But we have these dreams now in which Joseph is now uh, engaged with these two guys, the cupbearer and the baker. Now, notice the first thing that Joseph does. He sees them, and he sees that they're downcast, they're saddened, they're troubled. And Joseph looks at them and can see that. And you see now Joseph is sensitive to their needs. Now, that's a different sort of Joseph than we saw some time ago when we saw him as rather self-centered. Now we see a Joseph who's out there saying, I can see you're troubled. What can I do to help you? And, and, and I think growing in sensitivity is the first indication now that Joseph is now beginning to grow spiritually in such a way that we haven't seen in the past. We see him now maturing. We saw spiritual growth when he was able to say to Potiphar's wife, no, I'm not going to go down that road with you. We see him now being sensitive to the trouble that these inmates have. Now, if you've ever, I was going to say been in prison, perhaps someone has, and I'm glad you're out now, but perhaps you've worked with people who are in prison if you've ever done that, you often see people who've learned to harden themselves against life. You can't learn to care about others. Instead, you have to harden yourselves against the harsh realities of what it means to be incarcerated. And I've seen that many times in people that I've worked with. On the other hand, sometimes people in prison are softened by it. They see now the consequences of their life and they now react in a godly way from that. And that's perhaps where Joseph is now at. So he's sensitive to their needs. Secondly, he says, isn't it true that God is the one who controls dreams and can interpret them? And so now Joseph is beginning to show these signs of spiritual growth by, again, reacting with a God sort of reflex, always looking to what God's input might be on a situation. And in our lives, as we go through difficult times, whether it's a loss of a job or an illness or some unexpected circumstances that comes against us, we need now to learn to rely on God, to turn to God and ask, how would God want me to think about this situation? What would God want me to do as I go through these times in life? And that's now how Joseph is thinking and how he's reacting. So we see this growth in his life. And so we see these dreams. And we begin now in verse 9 as these dreams are told. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. And Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. So that's what the chief cupbearer's dream was. Now, you might pause for a moment and wonder, well, what's that dream about? Well, let's read on. Joseph tells us. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. And then Joseph adds in verse 14, which is really important. Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so to get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. So Joseph is told his dream by the cupbearer. 
and you see the circumstance, vines growing, grapes are produced, squeezed into a cup. We see this imagery, and Joseph says, in three days, you'll be delivered from this prison. You've been here for a time, but now in three days, you'll be delivered. And that's a good story. And I'm sure the cupbearer was glad to hear that. And maybe the baker was as well, because the baker now has his own dream. And he says, well, Joseph, I have a dream too. Let me tell you about it. Maybe you can tell me what it's about. So verse 16, when the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. And when he says, lift up your head from your shoulders, basically, is to say we're going to decapitate you, denogonize you. You're going to have your head cut off and then hung. Well, how do you hang a man whose head's been cut off? There's another way. They would take a pike, a tall 10-foot stick with a point on it, and plant you on it. And that way your headless body would be shown to others as a demonstration, as an example that you don't come against the king. And so the baker, hoping for perhaps a favorable interpretation, is giving something uh, quite contrary. Now we think about these dreams. Again, in the history of psychology, there's this discussion, like Freud and others along the way, that Dreams are some sort of reflection of our subconsciousness as we're at night sleeping. Our mind is beginning to reflect in the back of its head on all these circumstances in life. And we've all had dreams, I imagine, where we wake up in the middle of the night or early in the morning with all these weird things going on with either people you work with or, or you know, yelling. I know six months ago I woke up screaming in the middle of the night. Deanne's like, shoot, break, 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 calm down. And I sat there and laughed for about ten minutes because in a frightening situation in a dream... I finally found my voice. And you know, in dreams you often scream and you can't make it out. Well, I did. And that's happened, I know all of you when, you, when you fall into that deep sleep, you have those sorts of dreams. The point of those dreams is not that we interpret dreams, but the point is that God, through Joseph, will interpret those dreams. God is going to give Joseph an interpretation. Now, Joseph is a man who knows a lot. Joseph is a man who is, uh, who is uh, close to God and who has grown deeply. Again, uh, James Boyce, who was a pastor at 10th Street Presbyterian in Philadelphia for many years and a great preacher, uses this as a point to make this illustration of what we know. And we know we need to be people who know the truth and who pursue the truth. And he says that there are those four lines here. He thinks of some Eastern sort of a, a ditty or poem. But there's those who don't know and who don't know that they don't know. Those are fools. Shun them. Then he says that they, there are those who don't know, but know that they don't know. Those are children. Teach them. Those are, there are those who know and don't know that they know. Those are people who, is, who are asleep, so awaken them. Then there are those who know and who know that they know. Those are wise people. Follow them. And for each of us, we want to be people who know, who know what God says about things in life, who know others. We can trust because they know what God's word says, and we can grow in our confidence in their counsel and their advice. And so we want to be people who know. 
And Joseph was one of those who knew the truth, and he was committed to that. And so throughout Scripture, we see illustrations of those who do know. We see Jeremiah as an example of one who did know the truth. And King Hezekiah came to Jeremiah and asked him, what's going on here? And Jeremiah told him. We see other stories of Amos who came to the northern tribes and preached against them. He knew the truth, but they wouldn't hear him. In the Renaissance, in the 1400s, 1500s, there was a time there where the church in Rome was so corrupt. And, uh, and it found its way with popes who were evil, who were, who were conniving, who were stealing and, and, and raising money for their own benefit, who were trying to establish earthly kingdoms for themselves and their children. They had children. And so the, 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 there's this time in, in, in history where that's what it was about. And then we have one of the Medici popes, Leo X, who comes along, and he's using his position as pope to really enrich his own life, his own coffers. And they're spending money. Some's going to spend on the arts, the Renaissance art we know about, but it's going for themselves. But now they've run out of money. And so they decide now, well, let's sell indulgences. Well, what's that? And they explain to Leo X, well, what we do is we do this. We sell the right... People can buy the right to get their loved ones out of purgatory. You pay a little extra money and your loved one gets out of purgatory and gets into heaven. And so they begin selling this. Now, up in Germany, there was a man named Martin Luther who said, now, I've had enough of this. All this evil has been going on. I've seen this. But Martin Luther then found a point in life where he stood up against that sort of activity and said, that's got to stop. And so that's when he posted his 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg and said, this has got to end. What you're doing is evil. At that point, Leo X just thought this was another pulp up in the German area, not to worry about it. But that's when the Reformation began, when one man stood against the evil that was going on and said, that's not right. In all of our lives also, we find times where we have to know what's the right thing to do and what we should be doing. And what Martin Luther did there was to have the courage to tell the truth and to tell others what you're doing is wrong. Now, Joseph also had this moment in his life here where the chief baker gave him a dream. Now, I'm sure Joseph enjoyed giving the interpretation to the cupbearer and said, in three days, you're going to be back with Pharaoh and all is going to be well. But his interpretation to the baker was, you're going to have your head taken off. Perhaps Joseph knew that that's perhaps a symbol that this baker was, in fact, guilty of trying to kill the Pharaoh. Either way, Joseph had to deliver the bad news. And all of us in our own lives sometimes are called to those points where we too should be delivering the bad news. Now, I know there's a lot of TV preachers and, and others who like to deliver good news. And so every sermon is about how great life can be and God wants to bless you and on and on. Much of that is true. But parallel to that are also the truths that sin has corrupted this world and caused very bad consequences. And it's not always God's will that you be healthy and wealthy and carefree in life. Many times, I'm sure all of us have experienced those times where we know that life is not easy, that life is difficult, that we find times in our life when we're not employed, times in our life when our health is threatened, or times in the lives of our loved ones, our children, our parents, our siblings, where they're going through those struggles and we feel the burden of that. And we wonder, where's God in this? Why can't God just fix this for me? And so we pray and we depend on God. And it seems as though 
our prayers like letters that are mailed just wind up unopened on God's desk and we never hear from God. Joseph through this is saying, I'm going to stay faithful to God through this. I'm going to stay faithful even though I'm unjustly incarcerated. And we learn that. And just as Jonah had to learn to wait on God that salvation is from the Lord, so also Joseph is learning that. In his life, he has to wait on God to reveal his way, even if it doesn't comport with how we would have designed our lives. And we've done the right things. We've done everything right along life's path, and we find ourselves in these circumstances. But that's how it is sometimes. And so Joseph now finds himself in prison with his cupbearer, and he gives the interpretation, you're going to go back with Pharaoh. And at that moment, Joseph asked the cupbearer, will you please remember me? When you go back to Pharaoh, tell him my story. Tell him I was stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, sold as a slave, brought down to Potiphar's. I didn't do anything with Potiphar's wife, and now I find myself in prison for no reason. I'm an innocent man. Please tell Pharaoh and get me out of here. I've heard the story, the illustration of one king that once went to prison, and as he's walking through the halls of the prison, there's inmate after inmate who are saying, I'm innocent, let me out, I'm innocent, I didn't do anything, I didn't do it. Please, king, let me out, until he comes to one man who doesn't beg for anything. And the king asks him, why are you here? Why are you not begging me to let you out? And the man says, I did what they accused me of. I robbed and I stole and I, I did those things and I deserve to be here. And I spent my life in crime. And, and that's my fate. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm not begging to be let out. And the king immediately turns to his assistants and says, let this bad man out before he corrupts all these good people. And that sometimes in our life we think that, oh, we're innocent. I'm the innocent one. Maybe we need to instead think, no, we are ourselves guilty. And perhaps that's why circumstances have come against us. But Joseph finds himself now asking this cupbearer for help. But what happens? Joseph is, is left alone as we come to verse 20. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among the servants. I hope you catch that bit of humor there. He lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the baker. Two different meanings there, right? To the position. And he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. Now you think of this point in the story where Joseph had asked for help from this chief, uh, chief cupbearer. Remember me, but verse 23 ends, he forgot him. And then the next uh, verse, chapter 41, when two whole years had passed. Two more years pass, and Joseph is still left in prison. Now I imagine there's a time in his life where he thought, Letting me out can only lead to good. Why am I still here? It's not good to have prison as a tool of teaching. But all of us in our own ways go through some other type of prison. Perhaps we're unemployed. Perhaps we're suffering with health. Whatever it may be. And we find ourselves now having to make a choice on how we are going to respond. Are we going to use these times in our life to grow spiritually, to learn from them, to become stronger in that way, or are we going to use these times in our life to grow bitter, to grow angry and resentful and perhaps revengeful? One famous American prisoner from several years ago was a man named Charles Colson. You remember Charles Colson? 
If you're older, you do, and you may have lived through part of that story where Charles Colson was the chief counselor to the president of the United States, to President Nixon. And Nixon won handily in 68 and was going to win handily again in 72, but that wasn't enough. We wanted to make sure we're going to win. And it wasn't just the Nixon White House. This is the way politics was played back then. You did whatever dirty tricks you had to do to make sure you won. And perhaps it's life today is no different from that. Nothing is new under the sun. But Colson began to lead this, uh, the, this dirty trick sort of campaign. And there's many parts to it, and the story we don't need to get into, but with Gordon Liddy and, and Howard Hunt and others, they began to do these dirty tricks, and eventually Nixon won but Watergate, the scandal, breaks open. And it turns out many of Nixon's assistants and associates and high-ranking officials themselves would go to prison for it. Jeb Magruder was one who went to prison, became a believer, and became a Presbyterian minister in, in Tennessee for many years. Colson himself was viewed by everybody in 1972, 1973 as the most conniving, fox-like sort of uh, Machiavellian way of doing things. I mean, he was really a bad guy. He would tell you that. So he goes to prison for obstruction of justice and other crimes. He goes to prison for a few years, and when he's there, he too becomes a Christian. And so Colson now makes this announcement as he comes out saying, I've now become a Christian, as he, actually while he's in prison, and people know Colson, no, no, that's just Charlie. He's just out there trying to tell you this story as though he's changed his life. That's just his way of trying to get out of prison early, to try and gain sympathy. He's really still the same evil guy we've all known. And Colson says, no, this is real. Christ has changed my life. And so Charles Colson is eventually released. And you know what he does? He starts prison fellowship. He starts a ministry to help those who are incarcerated, to help those who are in prison. And he does this because while in prison, he learned something he never would have known as counselor to the president. And that's that there are injustices in the system. There are those who are either innocently convicted or who are harshly treated while incarcerated. And so he begins a fellowship, a ministry really, to those who are incarcerated and to their families to say, that as believers in Christ, we are here for you. We're here to help you. And there's those ministries like that that go on today because of what Colson did. And he never would have found himself in a position to do that had he himself not been incarcerated. So circumstances in life often work to do that for us. They put us in a place where we may learn something we never knew and may give us an opportunity we never expected. And that's Colson's story. But then he had a daughter named Emily, who was herself only a teenager when her father went to prison, but she became a believer also. And Emily, as she grows, has a son named Max. Max is born with a severe form of autism. And so Emily now has a child who's greatly disabled. And you might imagine she wondering, why is this happening to me and my family? What did we do to deserve this? Until she realized that God was giving her an opportunity with this son, to invest her life in this son in a way that she never could have in, in the lives of her healthy children. And so she writes a book called Dancing with Max where she talks about the story of her life where she's now able to do this with her autistic son. And in that book, she makes a couple of points. One, she finds that point in life where you don't know why God has put you in a circumstance 
and you don't know the way forward. But you also know that you're never going to quit. And in that tension in life where you don't know why I'm here, but you know I'm not going to quit either, you now know there's only one thing to do, and that's to turn to God. And so Emily now talks about that. And you may have heard her on Focus on the Family in the past, but that's her life now. And she's able to do something that others would never have thought to do, a ministry that others would never have been able to have. Johnny Erickson, you know her story. She dives into the, the, the water, the pool. She's a great swimmer, but she fractures her neck, becomes a quadriplegic. She now, her life seemingly ruined, everything over, now finds a place in her world, in her life, where she's able to do something that nobody ever thought she could do either. And she's now able to show others who suffer with severe disabilities, you can still have a life, and God still loves you, and you don't have to feel like life is all over. Joseph is now one of those. He's now in prison, but he knows that even here I can grow through that. And that's Joseph's great story. He doesn't become resentful. He doesn't stew in anger. And you can imagine through those many weeks that go by. I mean, he asks the cupbearer, remember me. And the cupbearer says, I will, Joseph. I'll be there for you. Don't worry. I'll tell Pharaoh. And so the next day he hears the keys outside the hall, he hears people talking, he thinks, today they're coming to let me out. And he looks through the door and there's nobody there letting him out. Well, that's just today. Maybe the cupbearer's got other circumstances he has to deal with. A day goes by, a second, a week goes by, they're coming for me. And every time he hears people outside, he's thinking, they're coming to let me out. Because now I have a messenger who will let them know, I am innocent. I didn't do anything wrong. The weeks turn into months. The summer turns into fall, which turns into winter, and he's still there. And I guess even in winter, it's still summer in Egypt, but he's still there. And days go by, and he's not let out, and he begins at some point to give up, to know that nobody is coming after me. And that's where many people then turn resentful and angry and spiteful and bitter, and they stew in that. Instead, as we will see in coming weeks, Joseph uses these moments of life to grow, to think, to spiritually mature, to become compassionate, to become loving, to become a, a man who reaches out to help others in their need. And he would rise to a high position as prime minister, basically, of Egypt because of his faithfulness to God. That's Joseph's story here. But you've got to wonder now, as this chapter ends, being left alone, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. He could have turned bitter, but he didn't. Instead, he grew. And I think for each of us, we too have to remember that as a lesson. That in life, we do depend on one another. And we should rely on each other. We need to know and learn to be reliable on behalf of others. But we also know that others fail us. Close people fail us. The ones we love often fail us. And when that happens, if your trust is only in them, only in that person, you can become angry and bitter and spiteful and revengeful when that happens. But if we know that in those moments we should now be turning our heart and our minds towards God and trust in Him, then we can gain a new perspective on life, a new way of thinking about life, and know, in fact, that God is there for us. Even when we feel like God's not answering our prayers like we want, we know, nevertheless, that God is for us. Let me read a few verses from uh, Proverbs and Psalms, which often reflect the wisdom of ancient Israel. 
But Proverbs 3, verse 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Sometimes we've all found ourselves in life where that's all we've got left. I don't know the way forward. But I'm not going to quit because I know God is on my side. I know I can make it. Psalm 146. Do not put your trust in princes, in mortal men who cannot save. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is the Lord his God, the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. The Lord who remains faithful forever. That's a psalmist advice to us. It's not in others. It's not in society. It's not in government. It's not out there that we find our our hope. It's in God himself. And God wants us to know that he's there for us. And then Isaiah perhaps gives us the message that we all need to keep in mind is that sometimes we have to know how to wait on God. That in God's own time, God will be there for us. And even though we don't know how or when, we know that God will turn our circumstances in such a way that it's for his glory. And I know many of you, perhaps all of you, have looked back over your life at strange circumstances, times in life where you thought you're going through something, I don't know how I will bear up under it. But you find now things worked out differently And then you find now that God has put you in a place where you can now do something you couldn't do before. You can serve others in a way you couldn't do before. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 30 has that passage that we all know well. But if you know the structure of Isaiah, chapters 1 to 39 are Isaiah talking about the sin in Israel, what they've fallen into and the consequences of that. But chapter 40 now begins a new section, a dramatic new section in which God is now talking about Israel's future, and the same future that we enjoy, which is a kingdom in which God controls and which we'll be blessed. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 30, even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength, and they will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And maybe that's all you have left today. You have no one else you know to trust in. You have a medical diagnosis in which the doctors say, I can't help you. You have a financial future which looks very frightening to you. Maybe all you know to do now is to turn your trust to God. We continue to help and pray for one another, but we know that God is our source and God is our answer. And that's God's message to Joseph. That's that's the lesson that Joseph gives to us. Even while imprisoned, unjustly, unfairly know that God has a place in the future for him. And Joseph now will rise because of his faithfulness. And had he not been faithful, we may not have seen the outcome that we see in the coming weeks. Let's stand as we pray. Our Father, as we reflect on this story of Joseph and this time in his life where he finds himself imprisoned, finds himself challenged by the circumstances of life, we often ourselves wonder why we endure what we endure in this world. We question why things don't go easier for us, why obstacles aren't cut down, but we know, Lord, that it's only in trusting in you that we can have 
a hope of the future, that our hope in the future is not in others, it's not elsewhere, but it's in you alone. So give us, Lord, a heart that commits our, our life, our future to you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.